only have uh, two more studies in Malachi, so it's this week, and then next week we finish up with the last few. And if you remember, then we will um, will be a couple of studies to kind of help bridge our gap into the study of Mark. So we're beginning, uh, we'll be beginning a look uh, at Mark, which will carry us pretty much for the rest of this calendar year. And so there'll be a few different messages to help us bridge the gap from the Old Testament to the New Testament, talking about things like the kingdom and what kind of happened in those roughly 400 years between the Testaments. It's important for us to recognize that, to give us the proper perspective. And that will actually be a key word for us this morning, perspective. And, uh, you know, it's okay. I got another one. A... uh, you know, one of the things that, that is kind of, I was thinking of this yesterday with the change in the weather, one of the, the great equalizers, things that kind of um, doesn't, it doesn't discriminate anybody, is the weather, okay? And so, um, what, as I mentioned earlier, what a difference a day makes. And actually, that is sort of the theme for what we're going to look at this morning in Malachi chapter 3. We're starting in verse 13. But then we will go to chapter 4, verse 3. Remember, of course, when these were written, there weren't chapters and verses designated. These were letters. These were books that were written, right? And so I assume when you used to write letters or you write a book, you don't just put like verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Those came later, and they're very helpful, especially in memorizing and reference. But it's okay when we go and study a, uh, from verse chapter 3 and go into chapter 4, because we want to be... Um, consistent and have some continuity in thought, right? That will help us to study. So we are in Malachi 3, starting in verse 13, and we're going to go through Malachi 4, verse 3. And I mentioned that idea of what a difference a day makes, and we could actually see that with the weather, how different it is from yesterday. But the people of Israel, as a reminder, have been calling out to God and responding to his judgment and condemnation, calling them out for their indifference um, to him and to his law. And he says in our passage today that there will be a day coming, the day of the Lord it's called, when you will see justice. Because what's happening is they have grown indifferent in every way. We talked about worship and we talked about giving. We talked about money, right? And we talked about their heart attitude. Everything had, they had been grown, they had grown indifferent, almost like we don't care. And so, even the, the title of today's message, "What's the point?" It kind of came to that. What's the point? And in a minute, I'm going to read the passage, and you'll see they basically say to God, because God says, "You're using my name in vain. You're taking me for granted." And they say, "How? How have we done that?" And He says, "This is how. You don't see a distinction between righteous and unrighteous." And the people basically say, "Look, all of the wicked and the unrighteous." They're getting away with everything, maybe even getting away with murder, as we say. And we don't see anything happening to them. But God reminds them that He is a God of promises, and He is a God of justice. And He says, there will be a day coming, and it's called the day of the Lord. And He says, where you will see once again the clear distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And it is then a call to the people of Israel, but of course, for us this morning, important principles that we can gain as the church, now in the age of grace and not in the age of law, to recognize, yes, 
We are to remain committed to our God, watching and waiting for His return. Because, praise God, our passage does end with a message of hope. That even though there is a day coming where God, as judge, will bring judgment. You'll see some of the words that we read today are pretty strong. But God is serious about good and evil. Serious about being a righteous judge. But for us, believers, as His church, we say praise God that we don't have to face that judgment. That Jesus Christ on the cross took that penalty and that punishment for us. And so we don't rejoice that there are those who will receive that punishment. In fact, it should motivate us even more so until His return to share our faith and let others know of the good news that they need not fear that day of the Lord. So let me pray for us and then we will open God's Word and read it together. Father, we do thank You for the powerful Word You have given us. These are Your words, the very words of the God of the universe. Help us. Lord, to be reverent towards them, to take it seriously. And God, as always, would you help us to be able to apply these truths to our lives so that when we leave here today, we would be changed people more in the likeness of Christ, more desirous to fit into that image in which we were created, that is, of you. And so, God, we know in that image we seek and desire truth, We desire to live upright lives marked by righteousness. But in the end, we don't do it for a selfish gain or for what we get out of it. But the point is, it's glory that belongs to you. So we give you that glory now and ask your blessing on the reading of your word and that we would help, Lord, to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Malachi 3, 13. Malachi 4, verse 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, But they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up My treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 
and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts, to our minds this morning. So there's a lot packed in here and perhaps some language and words that we're not familiar with, some things that may be confusing. And so my goal is that we would um, that we would have a better perspective on what it is God is telling uh, Malachi to bring to the people of Israel on how it reflects on us, the church. Specifically, what is this day of the Lord that he's talking about? What does it mean that there is wicked and there is righteous? And why would God describe it? The judgment like a burning oven and them being burned a stubble, being set ablaze. I mean, this is really strong and even disturbing language, isn't it? We don't like to think of that at all. But again, as we read through books of the Bible, we don't pass over Scripture. We take it as God provides it for us. But again... This message today does end with a message of hope. Because he says in chapter 4, verse 2, but for you. But for you. For us, that's us this morning. But for us. Right? So we'll make some clear distinctions this morning and see how it is that God is speaking to us in particular as his church. Because remember, first of all, this is a book of the Old Testament. And so God has appointed Malachi to be his prophet. And what do prophets do? One of the things they do, the most important thing, is they bring the message. They are messengers to bring the Word of God to his people. And it's always a message of return. Return. Stop what it is you're doing and the way that you are going. You have gone astray from me and from my law. You have grown indifferent. Return to me. I will bless you. Remember, under the Mosaic law, the law, the covenant that God made with Moses, through Moses and the people, you remember that's why we call it the Mosaic law, that it was a blessing or a curse covenant. It was very simply this. He gave them the law, the people of Israel, to govern them and to show them ultimately that they could not be righteous on their own. And when God finally sent the last sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, which we will see in the opening chapters of Mark, the Gospel. We know that they reject that. On the most part, the people of Israel reject that truth as being the very last prophet. But here, God says to the people of Israel through Malachi, you have grown indifferent in your worship and in your giving and even your heart for me. And even to this message today, they say, what is the point? What is the point of serving you, God? Because we don't see any justice. They're still on that theme. Just because God tells us something once, does that mean we learn it and we get it and we move on? No, He's repeating it because the people needed it. And so the people are responding to God's judgment and calling them out and saying that you have spoken hard words against me. He says, You have said it's vain to serve God. Look at verse 14 in chapter 3. What is the prophet? You know what that says? It says the people's attitude was this. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Can't we often get like that? Yes, with one another. Even in a marriage relationship or any kind of 
close friendship, but how about with God? Do we ever act like that? We might not think that or even admit to that. No, no, I don't, I'm not in this for me. It's for God's glory. We know that's true, but do our actions truly reflect that? Are there some times that we catch ourselves acting towards God and the way that He's dealing with us and basically saying to Him, what's in it for me, God, because I don't see you giving me what I think I deserve. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do that. It's that attitude of what's in it for me. We see other people around us prospering. It happens even in the church where we recognize that we are all the priesthood of believers, that we are all in level playing field, right? It doesn't matter our status here in society or in this world. In God's eyes, we are all His children. It doesn't matter, right? God doesn't make a distinction in that sense, does He? No, we praise God for that. Because by His grace we have been saved. Not because of who we are or where we were born and how much money we have or the color of our skin or the gender we were born with. No. We are saved by grace through faith, through Christ. His blood covers all sin for all people that believe in Him. For that salvation. But God is saying here, what you have done is this. You have grown indifferent. And you have come to me with these words basically saying, where's the profit in it for us? What's in it for me? You see, in a sense, they've been going through the motions. They're saying to God, okay, we've given you the offerings, we've been obedient, but what's it all for? What is the point? Have you ever gotten to that point in your life or even in your walk with the Lord where you've even said, maybe not out loud, But in your heart before God in a time of quiet, just between you and Him, have you said, God, what is the point? I follow you. I read your word. I go to church. Things don't seem to be getting better. I haven't gotten that job that I've been praying for. Uh, My relationship hasn't gotten better. That sin problem I have, that anger issue, my depression, my worry, it hasn't improved, God. So what's the point? Why continue? What God is saying is, wait patiently. Wait patiently. And He tells them this is why. Because there is a day, there is a day coming. It's called the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, where that distinction will be clear. That distinction, once again, will be clear. It's clear and every day. It's not just, see, the people had looked back in their history and they said, yes, When you brought our ancestors out of Egypt, it was clear. We saw the good and the evil. We could see righteous and unrighteous. That was clear. God, You have blessed us in many ways. We've seen that victory over warring nations. God, we see that. But here they have come back from exile. It's about a hundred years later. And they're sitting around going, now what? We don't see anything improving. Our crops are not doing that well. We're not feeling that good. There's pestilence. There's all these things. God, where's the justice? We see pagan nations around us that don't even know you are following pagan gods. And look how rich they are. Look how happy they are. There is something we always need to be reminded of and be wary of, of looking around and comparing ourselves to one another. Where do we find our true identity? 
it's not in comparing ourselves with others or anybody that you might see, anybody that's famous or rich for any reason. We all do it from time to time. It's part of our human nature. It's part of that envy. But what we're reminded of, especially in a passage like this, is we find our true identity in God through Jesus Christ and Him alone. It doesn't matter what the people around us are doing, whether they're prospering or not. Even if we see those that defame and defile His name, and we see them apparently prospering, what does God say? He says His vengeance and His justice belongs to Him. What is our call? Our call is to wait. To wait patiently on Him. So those prayers that have gone unanswered as of yet, perhaps they'll be answered tomorrow. Maybe the next day. Maybe next month. We don't know. God's timing is perfect. His will is perfect. But we see the people once again had shown how indifferent they had become. Almost calloused and forgetting what God had done for them. You could look back, each one of us could look back in our lives and our walk with the Lord and pinpoint times very clearly that God told us through His actions that He would provide. Times when maybe you got a money in the mail, you don't even know who it was for, and somebody handed you money, or you got something, you were blessed with something, and you didn't deserve it, you didn't know how it came about, but God, just at the right time, put the person in your life you needed, answered that prayer, You say, yes, God, thank you. If God did that even once for you, which I know He did, is He not the same God? And He will do it again. That's what God is reminding the people. He's saying there will be a day of the Lord. So let's continue. So in the the first part of this passage, 13, 14, 15, He's calling them out and He's saying this is what you're doing. Speaking speaking in vain, you're saying, what's the profit? Like, what's the use? What's in it for us? He's saying, now, we just, the people that are arrogant, we're just calling them blessed because evidently, God, you're okay with that. You see the indifference and even how they're kind of being ironic and mocking God? Oh, okay, God, that's the way you're going to work it now? Evildoers, they're prospering. They're even testing you. And it seems like they escape. No problem. That's an important word. See, they're saying it seems like the unrighteous will escape without punishment. He says this in verse 16, chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord, Malachi speaking, spoke with one another. It's that remnant. It's those who had not grown indifferent. If you read throughout Scripture, you'll see there's always a remnant of God's people. Those, even though around them the nation had grown indifferent as a whole, there are those who did fear the Lord. It says they got together, they spoke to one another, and God heard them and paid attention. And it says a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who feared the Lord and did esteem His name. See, He called those out who were defiling His name, but these are the ones who did esteem His name. He says in verse 17, they shall... Be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them. Now let's keep it in context because there is an application here for us. But God is speaking through Malachi to whom? To the people of Israel, right? And they were awaiting the day when God would send the Messiah to initiate and inaugurate the kingdom once again, 
where this promised Messiah would sit on a throne and reign, defeat all the enemies, and Israel once again okay, would be favored and blessed and all would be good. They're looking forward to that. And so God is saying, there will be a day when I will judge those who deserve to be judged. But He says, those who do fear Me and esteem My name, they will be Mine. Those who remain faithful, He's telling the people of Israel, they will be My treasured possession. See, in the context of God's um, working out of history, we know from prophetic Scripture, the Old and New Testament, Ezekiel and Daniel, going into the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, and Revelation, we see how this is all playing out. And we see that what's going to happen is that during that great tribulation, we know as the church, this is what we teach and believe, that the Lord will return. We don't know the day and the hour. It's not going to be April 23rd. For those of you who have been reading the news, you know what I'm talking about. I suppose it could be, but not because somebody you know predicted it. But anyway, the Lord Jesus could return at any moment. That's what we call it, His imminent return. And He will return and we will meet with Him in the clouds. That's what we tend to refer to as the rapture. That could happen at any moment. But after that, what begins is a time of tribulation here on this earth. And that is really set aside for God to finish His judgment of the people of Israel and all those who are alive at that time who do not recognize Christ as the Messiah and Savior. What happens after that? We believe it to be seven years of that tribulation. At the end of that, that is what we call the second advent or the second coming when Christ actually returns to earth to inaugurate His millennial kingdom because it lasts for a thousand years. At that moment of His return, what happens is He judges. See that? When it talks about the day of the Lord, what I believe is that is the time frame in God's history, in God's future, when it will occur. Right? So it's not necessarily the day of the Lord, the actual tribulation, which we believe as the church we won't be here for, but it will be when He returns to set up His kingdom. And He is saying to the people, let's keep it in context, what He's saying, this perspective is so important. He says, look, I will send the Messiah. I will judge those who are unrighteous. And it will be a terrible day. But for those who are righteous, who do fear and esteem My name, that day will be beautiful. Not because the others are being judged, but because of what it means for us. Let's continue further. I hope that kind of makes sense. We're actually going to talk about some of these events um, in a couple of sermons before we get to Mark. Important to bridge that gap just to know specifically and importantly what is happening in the minds of the people of Israel. What are they expecting and what is God doing as the great promise keeper? But what does it mean for us? So he says in verse 17, they will be mine. The people will be mine, a treasured possession. He's speaking to the people of Israel. But don't we know as the church, being saved by grace, that we are now a possession of God through Jesus Christ and that we are treasured in Him? Not specifically the one he's talking about here, but it still applies to us, does it not? That we are His church. More about that in a moment. So then he says in verse 18, then, this is the point he's getting to, to the people. He goes, then once more you will see that distinction between the righteous and the wicked. See, he's almost saying, look, you really don't want to see that, but you will. 
Because they're clamoring like, oh, we see all of the, the wicked, right? And the evildoers, they're prospering. He says, I will mete out my judgment. But you wouldn't want to be there for that. And you don't want to be accounted on that side because this is why. He says, and this is verse uh, chapter 4, first three verses of chapter 4. He is now talking about this day of the Lord. This day when Christ returns. So again, this is in Malachi. So he's not even talking about the birth of Christ, right? About the first advent. He's talking about the second advent when he returns as judge. Remember we made that distinction? That's really important. That in the first advent, the first coming of Christ, right? That we remember and celebrate on Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the coming Messiah, right? That that is the first advent, the first coming. He comes what? To bring peace, to bring salvation, to bring the good news of the gospel. He offered the kingdom to his to God's people of Israel and they rejected him. And so therefore, what? The gospel went out to whom? The Gentiles. To the rest of the world. And so that's why we praise God. That through his grace we are now saved and we are now part of his treasured possession, see? But when Jesus returns after the rapture, after the tribulation, when he returns to set up that kingdom that they are looking for, he says, I will judge. And this is how it, this is what it's going to look like. Chapter 4, for behold, that day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Did you notice right there, he used the same words that the people were using against him in verse 15. The, he says, the people are saying, oh, the arrogant will be blessed and the evildoers will prosper. He says, no. The day is coming burning like an oven when the arrogant and the evildoers. See that? They will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, giving that picture of fire, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. When you cut down a tree, there's always that root left, right? There's a semblance of the tree. He's saying they will be burned up, the unrighteous, the wicked, he calls them. So there not even will be no branches, not even a root. But verse 2, but for you. Those, he's saying, the remnant from verse 16 in chapter 3, those who fear the Lord, for you who do fear my name, this is what it will look like. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Do those words sound familiar? The sun of righteousness, healing in its wings. There's a, a great hymn that we sing. Christmas. Hark the herald angels sing, right? It's applying it to Jesus. Here I think he's talking about that day of the Lord, but I can see that. The Son of Righteousness healing in its wings, because evidently, and I mean eventually, it is a Messiah that brings that, and that's how God does it. But look at that. The Son of Righteousness, S U N, the Son, healing in its wings. This is the imagery. It's important that we don't miss that. What he's saying is this there is a distinction between good and evil. There is a distinction in God's eyes between the righteous and the unrighteous between the holy and the unholy. Now to us, that might seem obvious and clearly evident. But to the people of Israel that God was speaking to through the prophet Malachi, they had grown indifferent. They could no longer see that distinction. The church, that's the danger of us growing indifferent in our worship, 
in our heart attitude, in our offerings, in our giving, in all of in every aspect of a relationship to God, when we grow indifferent, and we say, "What's the point? My life's not getting any better." What we're saying is we're coming that from a selfish perspective, saying, "What's in it for me?" That's what the people did. They were saying, "God, what's the point? Where's the profit?" Where's the profit for us? Like, you know, what do we gain in all this? But he says the clear distinction will also be made that in that day of judgment, the fire will be like a burning oven where those who are wicked and unrighteous, he says, will be burned up. Not like they don't exist anymore, but it means there's no a possibility or opportunity for them to enter that kingdom. See? It's that last opportunity. He's saying, I come as judge. When Christ returns in His second coming, He comes as judge, doesn't He? So should that not motivate us and even be sobering for us as the church, as Christians, to share our faith with those who are lost? And are without hope because they don't yet have Christ. This should motivate us. God wanted to motivate the people of Israel. You remember what He said in the previous chapter? He said, return to Me. Not even specifically to My laws. He said, return to Me. Right? Turn your eyes back to Me. Get your eyes off of the people around you that you think are prospering. He goes, it's all temporary. What do we say? You can't take it with you, right? It's all temporary. Because at the end of all things, God will be His judge. And there will be, He says once again in verse 18 of chapter 3, once again you'll see the distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. Between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't. So we might see some blurred lines these days. We might have our focus set adrift, we need to be recalibrated to our focus on our true north, to our God, the one God we serve, and remember to be faithfully waiting for Him. That's all God asks of us. How simple that is. We need to keep it simple because we tend to complicate things, right? When we do, we become indifferent. But when we just keep it simple, remember what has God asked of us? He says, trust me and obey me. Trust me and obey me in everything. You might not feel like I'm with you. You might not sense that you're being blessed because everything around you seems to be falling apart or nothing is getting better. That's what the people of Israel felt. Our crops are not growing, God. Where are you? All these evildoers and scoffers, they make fun of you, God, and they're doing pretty good. They're prospering. Look at their fields. God says, wait. Wait patiently. They said, what's the point? The point is this. I will return as judge, God says. So be found to be those who are faithful. The point. Why continue reading? Why continue praying? Why continue obeying God's Word? Why continue if we're struggling if we're suffering, why continue waiting? First of all, we recognize we ask that question when we've lost sight of our purpose and our true identity. See, we are His. 
bought with the blood of Christ. We are no longer our own, but we are bought by Him. Why are we given every breath that we have? Why are we even given life? It is not for our purposes, not for our happiness. It is for His glory. I'm going to give you these three passages from Scripture. They'll be up on the screen for you to help give us that perspective on answering this question ourselves. The question the people of Israel asked, God, what's the point? The first one, Ecclesiastes 12. Solomon wrote these words. Listen to what he learned. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. In other words, trust and obey. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Even Solomon, wise man, recognized that. He says all has been heard, which means what? God knows what's going on. Fear God, keep His commandments, trust and obey. That's the duty. Second one, Psalm seventeen fifteen. Here's David writing a psalm and he says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. See, if we're trying to answer that question for us, what's the point in all this? God, what's the point in me continuing to just so to read and to pray and to, and to be obedient when nothing around me is changing? My life's not getting any better, God. David, who experienced just that over and over, he says, as for me, here's what I've learned. I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied, what? With your likeness. He doesn't say I'll be satisfied with the things you've given me. I shall be satisfied with this and that, the material possessions. No, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. You know what it says to me? I'll be satisfied with just being with him. It's even wrong to say, oh, that that should be enough for us. Yes, it should be enough. That That should be everything for us, shouldn't it? No matter what's going on in our lives, we get to commune with the living God through prayer. He's given us His Word. We can walk with Jesus every moment of every day. We have the Holy Spirit living with us, within us, church. We have God with us. That's not only enough, that's everything. What else do we need? No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what the people next door have in parked in their driveway, no matter what's going on, we are His. And all those in this world who may seem like they're prospering, but they're without the Lord, they are lost. And unfortunately, we don't talk in these terms a lot, but they're headed for this judgment. We don't want that for anybody. And finally, Philippians 3, 9-10. through This is the Apostle Paul. Look at his perspective as if he was answering this question, what's the point, God? To be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, no, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, that's for us. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings Becoming even like Him in death. Do you see the perspective that Paul gained in spending time serving God and being faithful to His calling? 
it's not about what he gains. It's not even about Jesus taking away the thorn in his side that he pleaded God to take away from him. He says, no, that I may simply know him. What powerful words they are. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? So it's okay to pray that God would bless us with things we need. He knows what we need. Does he not tell us, Matthew, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? His righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. All these things what? All the things we worry about. Will we have a job? We have enough food to eat? We'll, we'll be healthy? All those things. He says, God knows what we need. He takes care of the birds of the air. And how much more does he love us? Paul is saying it there. All I want to do is know him. I just want to know him. I'll share in his sufferings. I'll become like him in death. I, I just want to know him because he's my Lord. There's no selfishness there. It's a simple focus on the righteousness in Christ. So what's the point? He's the point. He is the point. When we make ourselves the point in life, we grow indifferent to God. Why? Because we question His faithfulness when things don't work out the way we think they should. When we realize that He's the point, all else fades in importance. And I end with this imagery and this symbolism. You know, he talks about the book of remembrance being treasured. We know now, he's talking about Israel, but we, as his church, being bought with his son's blood, he remembers us, his church. You know, there is this great symbolism and imagery given in Scripture in the New Testament about marriage. About marriage being applied to Christ and the body of believers. That's us, the church. We know that. He talks about it in Ephesians 5, right? So, the church is made up of all those who have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. We know that. And Christ is pictured as the bridegroom. He has sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be His bride. Isn't that beautiful? So we are the church. We are considered the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. Okay? Now, back in the day, in Jesus' day, when He would have given this imagery, this is important to understand, there was a time of what was called, what was called betrothal. We might look at it as like the engagement period, like when you're, you've made that commitment, right? So there was a time of what they called betrothal, when you were you know, betrothed and committed and engaged to one another, and that was a period of time. But during, listen, during that period of time, the bride and the groom were separated. Now that doesn't happen today, right? I mean, you don't just ask somebody, a woman to marry you and say, okay, I'll see you next year. Right? But there was a specific amount of time, whatever it was, where they were betrothed. But then, for that period of time, the bride and the groom were separated until the wedding day. It's kind of like, you know how a lot of couples, they still, um, they still um, go through that tradition on the wedding day where the bride and the groom don't see each other, right? Until the bride comes into the church, that whole thing, right? It's beautiful. It's kind of like symbolic of that. But that's important to understand in, in what we're, we're closing in on here. Okay, As I'm ending with this picture of what's going on through Malachi and the people of Israel, but for us, the church. See, he was telling the people, and he tells us, just wait. Wait patiently. See, because that time of betrothal when the bride and groom were separated until the wedding, that's this time right now. That's what we call the age of grace or the church age. You see that? 
Because we are separated physically from Christ. Christ is separated from His bride during this time. But we know that Christ will return. See, isn't that that why it's our great hope? When Christ will return, we call the rapture for us, His church, His bride. And He takes us. He doesn't even descend to the earth. We meet Him in the clouds. That's why it's not called the second coming. See? It's the rapture. And so we join Him in the, in the air. We get our glorified bodies. We say hallelujah to that. And we are joined. You see that? What we look forward to, we see in Revelation, is the marriage feast of the Lamb when Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom, is once again and finally and forever joined together with us, the church, His bride. Why is that important? Because what was supposed to happen during that time of betrothal, that engagement period, when the bride and the groom were separate, they were supposed to wait. Wait patiently and do what? Remain faithful. Remain faithful. You're not looking at another. You're not wanting another. You have made a commitment. You're going to get married. See that? But during that time until the wedding day, Your call is to remain faithful. The bride and the groom, that's for us today, church. That is our call, to wait patiently, to not even get to that point where we ask, what is the point? To be careful not to grow indifferent, but to recognize, yes, until the Lord returns for us, we are to wait. How do we wait? We trust and we obey. We trust that He's returning. We trust that God will mete out His judgment on those who are wicked, who defame His name. That's all in God's hands. But the church's responsibility during this time when we are physically separate from the Lord, we have Him within us, but until He returns and we're we're once again joined to Him, our responsibility is to remain faithful and wait. That is the point. That's the point he was getting across to Israel, saying, I'm going to return. There is that day you'll see the distinction. But but remain faithful. Remain faithful. It's a simple calling, but it's important nonetheless. It's so clear and so evident that as God's chosen as the church those whom He bought through the blood of Christ, that we are to wait and wait patiently. While we wait, we are to be about His business, as we say. What does that look like for us? It means trusting Him when we don't really know what's going on. When we pray for things and we don't see it coming to fruition, we trust that He did hear us and He knows what's best and His timing is best. What does that look like for you in your life? Waiting faithfully? to be reunited with Christ? What does it look like for that waiting? Are we willing to learn, to grow, and to be serving? And where is our heart in all that? The people of Israel said, what's the point of even serving? What's in it for me? We don't ask that question as believers. We say, what's in it for God? Does He get all the glory by us waiting and trusting? One day He will return. Maybe it's April 23rd. I don't know. But He will return for us. We look forward to that day. What will we be found doing when Christ returns for us, church? 
Are we waiting patiently? Are we waiting faithfully? Are we trusting Him? And are we serving Him until He returns for us? I'd like us to do this before we pray. If you would stand. Let us just sing these words, very familiar to us, church. These words to help keep our focus. You can even close your eyes as if you know the words and just sing this together as this church. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace. Sing it one more time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace father that's our desire that's our song you call us in your word many times to sing a new song in him that is our song father god for this morning and every day that we would turn our eyes to jesus When those things around us in this world distract us, when we become envious of what's going on in the lives of other people, Lord, would you please remind us, rebuke us, God, through your Spirit. Bring us back to your Word that shows us very clear that our identity is in you. Not what people say about us. Not what people say we should be attaining or should be like. But who you are, your Son Jesus. He is our example and perfect in every way. So God, as our eyes drift, as our minds drift towards indifference, Father God, would you have mercy on us? Lord, call us and remind us to be humble that we would do, just as we sing, that we would turn our eyes to Jesus, to Christ on things above where He is. Not things down here, but things above where Christ is. Those things that are good and holy and righteous for us. And as we do that, all else will fade away in the light of Your glory. And we thank You that's in Your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.